Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the shepherds here. And uh, this morning we start on a whole new series. We've just wrapped up the Gospel of John and now we are jumping into Habakkuk. And uh, most of you should have picked up a journal at the front as you come in. Um, Those have gone over well with uh, the book of John. So we're continuing that concept and it's, uh, it's just a great thing to be able to write. Uh, notes right along the way, but be able to make sure those of you who won't bring your Bibles will make sure you have one anyway. We're trying to help you get closer to God whether you want to or not. Um, Bottom line is we're going to jump into Habakkuk today and uh, one of those books that um, you might avoid just simply because you're not sure how to pronounce his name And as with all things that are difficult to pronounce in Scripture, just say it fast with confidence, and you're usually going to fool everybody else. They go, oh, that's how you say it. Habakkuk, that. So today, though, as we get into it, um, I want to set a little bit of background because we're going to spend the time, uh, as soon as we're done with that, of just jumping into the book and some of the things that get revealed here. But the first thing is Habakkuk himself, and it it shows up right off the bat of what we know about Habakkuk. In that very first line, it says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, that's what we know about Habakkuk, right there, that he says he was a prophet. This is the oracle that Habakkuk saw, the prophet Habakkuk. That's it. We know nothing else. There is nothing in the genealogies that show who his father was, who his mother was, where he came from, anything else. We know only that statement. So as far as the man Habakkuk, that's all we know from that one phrase, that he was a prophet. Now from the book itself, we get a setting that actually helps us understand a little bit of why he says what he says and what was happening. And this setting we're going to spend a little more time on just simply because it's, it, it lines up with some really kind of cool things that anchor it down. So when we just simply go, well, we don't know anything about Habakkuk other than his name and that he was a prophet, why do we even trust this book? The book itself actually carries more heritage than Habakkuk did. The concept is, is that not only is it in our Bibles, but everything that it says about history, that is God says something, Habakkuk says something, it actually lays out to, to be fulfilled in history. It lines up exactly with historically what happened. And in fact, even the prophecy of, of Jeremiah and several other prophets that were talking about what was going on at this time lines up exactly with Habakkuk. In fact, even with the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they first first found the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the books of the Bible that they found right off the bat was Habakkuk. And even Paul, Paul quotes from Habakkuk three different times in three different books, as well as in Acts, it's, it's quoting him as he's teaching and as he's preaching, and he quotes Habakkuk. So we end up with this book that actually has this really rich heritage throughout history and throughout Christianity that has these anchors that go very deep, even though Habakkuk himself we know very little about as far as his person, who he was and where he came from. So that part is set. The actual historical setting takes place in Judah. 
Now, I'm going to do a little bit of background here, is that Israel in the Middle East was a, a, a group of 12 tribes. Ten of the tribes took the countries, or the, they, they took territories to the north, and that was known as when Israel split, it split into two different segments of the kingdom. The, the, Israel was to the north with ten tribes, and then Judah was to the south with two tribes. And Judah, down in the south, is what is left of Israel because of the whole nation, because the northern kingdom had already fallen, it had already been taken over, it had already been destroyed. And all that is left is this little segment down at the bottom where you have Judah, and this is the remaining part. And this is what is happening. Now, you have different kings that go through, and you'll remember if you've read through the the kings and the chronicles, that as you go through it, it tells those stories that there was a good king, and there was a bad king, and this king did good in the eyes of the Lord, and this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What happens with Habakkuk is he is living during a time when the king by the name of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim is an evil king. And as he gets into power, he's basically a puppet for King Nebuchadnezzar. He's been put into place by by another world power. And he's just sitting there being propped up and he's doing evil. He's kind of going against the things that his father had set up of good in the kingdom. And now he's turning everything bad. And it's getting so bad that what happens is even Jeremiah, he, he prophesies for the Lord and comes and speaks to the king and says, oh, king, think bad things are going to happen. And we're not going to go through Jeremiah and his prophecies. But literally, the king would have that scroll come in. He would read parts. He'd cut them off, and then he'd throw them in the fire. He was taking the words that were being sent to him from God and burning them piece by piece in front of everyone disregarding what God was saying. And then Uriah, another prophet alive at that time, speaking against the evil that Jehoiakim was doing. Literally, Jehoiakim went after him. He ran to get out of, out of the country. Jehoiakim tracked him down and ran him through with a sword and butchered the man of God in front of everyone. This is what Habakkuk is talking about when we read his complaints against God. So let me read them again. This is verses one through four. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. That Habakkuk is watching godly men be murdered while murderous men are thriving, living in kingdoms surrounded by riches and everything's going their way. Why is it that evil seems to thrive and the good seem to suffer? Why is it that the the bad things happen in our life to good people and good things happen to bad people? Ever wonder that? This is one of the biggest questions of all time that people come up with this question and they wonder about the whole problem of evil because we watch it. 
I initially, when I, I read this passage and I thought, all right, I've got to teach out of this passage, I thought, well, I'm going to give some list of some horrific evil, some suffering, some bad things. And I thought, no, you already know it, don't you? You read it in the paper, you see it on the news, you've experienced it in your life. You've been a part of it, it's happened to you. In some cases, you may even have been a party and done some of it. This is normal part of our life that evil happens, but what happens with the world is the world is captivated by this question. In fact, God is put into the, the, onto the stage to be questioned whether he exists or not based on this question. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful, And if God says he's loving, then how can there be evil in the world if you have an all-knowing, all-powerful God who's loving? How in the world can there be evil? And this this little trilemma of, of power, of love, and evil, if you put them all together, then therefore there is no God. That's what the world says. You can't have evil if you have a loving God who's able to stop it. Either he's not loving or he's not powerful or he's incompetent, or he's not paying attention. And literally, this question isn't a new one for us in this day. Like, we suddenly got smart and decided to ask the question. This is Habakkuk in the 7th century BC asking this very question and saying, how in the world can there be evil, God, when you're there? And are you just idly watching wrong? Are you just sitting there watching it happen and you're not doing anything? This is a great question, but it's a troubling question. The trilemma of what it is when we philosophically ask that of if there's a powerful God and a loving God, then how can there be evil? Therefore, there is no God is what many people come up with. They dismiss God on that. Others come up and they don't even want to be philosophical about it. They do it on a personal level and they simply stop and say, look, if I were God, I wouldn't do it this way. If I were God, I wouldn't have suffering happening in the world. Therefore, because I would do it different, even if God exists, I'm not sure I would trust him if he allows suffering in the world. And so we hold a distance to God because even if we might think he exists, we decide we don't want anything with a God who's powerful and capable of delivering us from suffering and does not. You've been there? This is a deep, deep question, and it's why we're jumping into Habakkuk. And what I love about the Bible is the Bible doesn't sit there. God doesn't, doesn't stop and go, well, I hope they never think of that question. I hope they never ask me this. But instead, one of the prophets of God's thinking this through and asked this question, and God says, that conversation I'm going to put right here in the Bible. I want it to be right in front of you. I want you to wrestle with this issue. I want you to, to, to get in with it and, and roll around in it and say, wait, what is going on here? This is what the book of Habakkuk is about. And over the next several weeks, we're going to dive in and peel back the layers of this and what's happening. Habakkuk himself is frustrated and confused. He's afraid. He's disillusioned. He's doubting. He's overwhelmed. Literally, some of his friends are being put to death. And in the middle of all of that, he does something that is our first point for the day. He asks... So here's the point. 
that as we go through these kind of things, I want you to understand that Habakkuk does something brilliant. He asks God. In the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the doubt, in the middle of the confusion, in the middle of the struggles, in the middle of all the storm that's whirling around him, he doesn't just leave God in the distance and wonder these questions. He turns towards God and he asks God, because if anyone could answer that question, it's not us, it's not you, it's God. And he asks God, so I wanted this first point is just simply, who you ask matters. Who you ask matters. If we take this question, the problem of evil, and go to a college professor, what kind of answer might we get? Some kind of philosophical perspective. But if you want to know why God is doing what he's doing, the person to ask is God. This whole idea of who you ask matters, and some of you may not have ever seen it. It was a movie a long time ago, but the the detective series with... um, uh, Inspector Clouseau, and he, was, uh, he would go out and investigate murders and different things like that, and Inspector Clouseau at one point is checking into a hotel, and as he checks into the hotel, he's talking to the, the reception guy, and uh, there's a little dog right there, and so he stops, he has a French accent, I'm going to butcher it badly, but he basically says, does your dog bite? And the receptionist looks at him and says, no, no, he doesn't bite. And so Inspector Clouseau goes down to pet the dog, and the dog just, just lumps onto his hand and bites him really bad. And he's like, I thought you said your dog did not bite. And the receptionist says, it's not my dog. <laughs> Who you ask matters. Do you get it? It's like going up to a woman and saying, will you marry me? That's a romantic question. But if you've never met it before, it may not go well. (laughs) Who you ask matters. I want you to understand, although this seems trite, this is a deep philosophical problem for so many of us is that we too many times are like those, those little boys who go running through the neighborhood and run up on the porch and ring the doorbell and then run off giggling, never waiting to see who might answer. We're almost afraid of the answer from God and so we go and we start to engage but then we run away and we'll discuss it with all kinds of other people. We'll ask it of all kinds of other people but we won't ask it of God. And Habakkuk does a spectacular thing here is he asks God. Now, one of the reasons we're hesitant is because we think our questions aren't very intelligent. We think that they're not, we're not a, a deep thinker, that we may not be asking it right, and maybe it's inappropriate to ask God. Habakkuk shows us that it is not. There are four questions in those first four verses, and they're some of the deepest, most troubling questions that mankind could ever ask, and Habakkuk takes them straight to God. But this idea of questions and them being troubling is, is, is something we deal with every day. Our kids ask us questions. How many of you that have young kids right now are sick of your kids' questions? <laughs> Mama, why? Mama, why? 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 Just stop asking questions. Anyone? That's just, it drives you crazy. So I just, I had to pull in a few of those that, that come up. One of my favorites was uh, this mom and her son are sitting in church and he notices this image of Jesus on the cross. So in the middle of church, he, he stops and he says to his mom, mom, why is that man on the cross? 
And she says, because he was talking in church. (laughs) We can address this. We can just shove down the questions and go, don't talk. Or the one where the grandpa and his grandson, or they're going to the ice cream store and they're going to get an ice cream. And the grandson looks up at his grandpa and he says, grandpa, did God make you? And grandpa says, why, yes. Yes, he did. And grandpa's excited. His grandson is even thinking about God. And he says, grandpa, did he make me? And he's like, yes. Yeah, he made you. He made you too. And then the grandson gets his smile and he goes, oh, God's getting better, isn't he? (laughs) Don't you love these questions? I mean, we can do this all day because kids just ask questions all day. And it's, it's that whole thing. I'm, I'm, the last one is uh, one, one young boy, he's, uh, he's listened to his parents and his, his grandma talk. His, he had lost his grandpa. He, did, he had died. But the grandma was, uh, years had gone by and she had decided to get remarried. She'd met somebody and was going to get remarried. And, and they were talking about it. And so he says, well, grandma, why are you getting married? And he says, so I have someone to talk to. And the grandson thinks about it for a second. And he says, couldn't you just got a parrot? <laughs> the questions are silly. And we do not disdain our children. We don't think less of them. We don't put them down. We don't hate them. We, we think they're children. We think that that's appropriate. Why would we hesitate to ask God questions when we understand that he knows that we don't know? We talked about that back in John. Remember, he knows we don't and he knows we don't. God is not going to punish us because of our curiosity and our wondering because we're wrestling with a deep issue. And so the beauty of what happens with Habakkuk is this question, these questions he asks, he brings his biggest doubts, his biggest hurt, his biggest suffering, his biggest what the heck is going on question to God. And he asks God, who you ask matters. Ask him. Bring your struggles to him. Don't be afraid of him. And this part, it's just a wonderful thing that he would do just that and ask. In fact, the whole thing about Habakkuk, his name, the one thing that we do know about his name is it's a Hebrew word and the word means to wrestle, to embrace, to cling. It's the idea that this is where Habakkuk, in the middle of his dark times, in the middle of his struggles, where does he go? He goes to God and he clamps on and he clings and he embraces almost to the point of wrestling with God about the difficulties that he's in. Anybody in difficulties today? Anybody got hard things you're going through? Who you ask matters. Move towards him, grab a hold of him, wrestle with him, don't let him go until that answer comes forward. Until God begins to do those things that he does so well. In fact, I, I want to show you that God does this. Um, in Romans 8, uh, let's turn there really quick. In Romans 8, you can't if you're in the little green journal book. Uh, it's uh, towards the back. Just keep turning and turning um, for a long ways. Uh, there are Bibles in the thing, and I, I think they'll pop it up as well. But in Romans 8, uh, 26... This is God, and it's talking about God, and it says, likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. In other words, even though we're childlike, even though we're flawed, 
The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't even know the right questions to ask. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That God himself actually helps us in our questions. He helps us in what we're praying for, that we're not even sure what to ask. And then in Hebrews, there's another uh, example of this in Hebrews 4, the very last part of the chapter. In verse 14, Hebrews 4.14, it says, Since then we have a, high, uh, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That God already knows that we're weak. God already knows we have these questions and he invites us in to come boldly before the throne to draw near to him and he actually helps those questions come out of us. Don't hesitate with questions about God. Chase it down. Embrace him. Cling to him. Pursue him. Now, here's the thing. The book of Habakkuk, the reason we have it, and I just love this, is because Habakkuk did just that. Literally, what would have happened if he would have had these dark thoughts and just drifted off and kept them to himself? We would have had nothing. Instead, he asked those questions, and what happens next is magical. Magic being that thing that seems to be supernatural and outside of this world, I mean that. Because look at Habakkuk 1.5. The Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. If you didn't catch it, God answers. This is spectacular. If you don't realize what we're reading now is words, because Habakkuk asked, God answered, and we now get to hear from God in response to these questions. This is God giving his perspective about these issues. And this is a beautiful point that, that we look at it, and we have to realize that this is point number two. So the first one is, who you ask matters. The second one here is that God engages with those who seek him. It's a simple principle and one that can be missed because we're reading such big stuff that's going on in this passage. But the bottom line is Habakkuk has a question and he turns towards God and God responds. God answers. This principle that, that God answers and actually engages with those who seek him is, is huge. So I'm going to read just a few verses so you understand that I'm not just making it, pulling it out of just this one passage. But we're going to go through a, a few verses really quick. Um, they'll pop up on the screen. But Deuteronomy 4.29. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. Proverbs 8.17. I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. 
Acts 17, 26 and 27. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any of us. I love that. That God is not far from any of us. Not you, not you, not you. Those way in the back that are far from me, he is not far from you. God is not far from any of us. So when we look at this, the second point here is that the God of the universe engages with those who seek him is a really big point in the middle of all the rest of this confusion. It's, it's, it's wonderful that God will engage with us. So in Habakkuk 1.5, God's first words are, look to the nations. So a little bit of Hebrew here. Nations, the word nations there is goyim. And if you've ever hung out with uh, Jewish people, you may actually hear the word occasionally goyim. The goyim, and some people think it's a bit of a slur, but it's not intended to be. But goyim is basically those who are not Jewish. People of another nation, people of another tribe, they're not us. In the Jewish people, they refer to them as goyim. That's because that's what this word is in the Hebrew for the word nations. What God is saying is, look to the goyim. Look at the goyim. Look at the people who are not Jewish. So God's answer right in the middle of this, as he says this, is he's talking to a Jew in Judah And this whole thing, he's talking to the Jewish God, all of this seems to be this tight little world that Habakkuk's living in. Habakkuk is watching this evil and injustice happening around him. He's watching his peers, the prophets around him, die and be murdered by the king. He's watching it all happen and he stops and says, God, will you look? Look what they're doing. Do you see? Do you see what they're doing? And God stops and says, actually, what I want you to do is I want you to look at the nations. I want you to look at the Goyim. I want you to look at the Gentiles. I want you to look at the heathen. I want you to look at the bigger world because there's something else happening there. And this is what he says. Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That God is in the middle of this. Habakkuk is down in his little world saying, here's my world and it's not going well. God, do you see what's happening in my world? And God is saying, actually, I do. I'm fully aware of what's going on in your world. Do you realize what's happening in the far bigger world? There's a bigger thing going on that I am working on. In fact, if I told you all of it, you would not believe it. It's far bigger than that. It's far bigger than you could understand. And God is known for this. Everything from Abraham in the very beginning, when Abraham takes Hagar, as the, that's his wife's bond slave, and he takes Hagar and sleeps with her, and they have Ishmael. And then eventually, as Sarah does get pregnant and has Isaac, she gets jealous of Hagar and kicks Hagar out. And Hagar, from another tribe, she's Goyim, gets sent out. And as she goes out and she sets her son under a bush to die and she goes off and begins to to cry out, God hears their cry. God is involved and engaged with the Goyim. I'm really glad about that because I'm Goyim. I'm non-Jewish. 
Most of us are non-Jewish. We, we probably have some Jews here. But the idea isn't that it's because you're Jewish, you're the only ones who have a line to God. God is literally saying, I reach out to all. Look to the nations and watch and see what comes of this. Now, one of the reasons why I like this part so much is because years ago, there was a, a girl, 18-year-old girl, who was from Northern California. Um, her name's Eugenie, and those of you who know me, that's, that's my wife's name, Eugenie. She was Goyim. But she didn't even know God. She was raised in a family that weren't Christians, and in the process, she and a friend got invited to come to Hume Lake, and I happened to be working at Hume Lake, and she walked in, and I looked at her, and I thought, that's good. I agreed with God when he said, when he made it, he says, this is good. He was right. This is good. We uh, got to meet it just for those few days that she was on the hill. And then she went back to Chico, California, where she lived and eventually ended up applying for a job to come to Hume, but she wasn't a Christian. And for whatever reason, Hume ended up hiring her. That's not normal. Hume doesn't do that. They hire Christians to work at a Christian camp. Hume Lake Christian Camps up in the mountains, works with kids, teaches them about Jesus. And now here's a girl that's not even a Christian. They hire her because of a a friend in the family's relationship. She comes to Hume and she's there for maybe about a month and a half. But that month and a half, she realizes these people are not my people. I'm not a Christian. I don't believe what they believe. I don't even know what they're talking about. In fact, some of the Christians were pretty aggressive at trying to convert her, so she felt like she was constantly being attacked. People were saying mean things about her family and about her destiny for hell. So she quit and left. And she went back to Chico. But while she was in Chico, there was this thing in her heart that began to just wonder, and she began to ask. And she simply cried out and said, God, if you are there, you're going to have to reveal yourself to me. And she found herself seeking out to find out more about who this God was. She began to read her Bible. She literally took out the phone book to look up churches. And she, there were so many different churches. She was going, how do I know which church is good and which church is bad? Well, while she was at Hume, the churches would, would come up for KP. And she was working in food service. So she would hear that this church had KP for breakfast. And she would hear the, the name of the local neighborhood church and the name of a four-square church and the name of an Evie Free church in Chico and a community church. And as she heard those names, she recognized those were churches that would come to Hume. So she picked a particular church and she began to attend. She went to everything that they had. They had a Bible study, couples Bible study, she went. She didn't have a couple, she went. There was a baby shower. She didn't even know the family. She went. She went because she was curious, because she had a thirst, because she had a longing, because she had questions. And one night in her room in Northern California, far away from any other believer that knew what was going on in her world, she was seeking after a living God who was doing a greater thing. And he, the God of the universe, met her there. And she gave her life to Christ. And we got married. We've been married for 38 years now. And God was doing a greater thing. 
This idea that when God stops and says, look, look to the Goyim, I'm doing a far bigger thing. What he's talking about is, yes, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. And again, here's Habakkuk. He's going, I'm worried about my king killing other prophets. And God's like, oh, don't worry about that. I'm about to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're going to be murderous and they're going to destroy your entire country. So don't worry about that. (laughs) You're worried about the wrong thing. It's going to get way worse before it gets better. That's God's response to Habakkuk. But he says, but you need to know I'm doing something far bigger that you would not believe if told. And a lot of people think what that means is that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans. No, Habakkuk hears that and he does believe that. And he's like, no, don't do that. He believes that. What is this bigger thing that he's doing? He's actually setting up the stage for the deliverance of his own son to come to the earth to be the sacrifice, to cover all the sins of all people for all time. That's the bigger thing that if God said, look, I'm going to tell you that I'm actually going to send my son to die for Jehoiakim. That would not have been good news to Habakkuk. He wouldn't have liked that. But God was working on the bigger picture of the gospel for all of us. That we might know and have a relationship with God because he's already paid the price. He is doing a far bigger thing. That far bigger thing shows up. In fact, when we talk about Paul, um, that Paul, uh, in one of his sermons, his messages, he's with Barnabas and he's preaching. This comes out of Acts 13. And in Acts 13, 37, it says, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything, everything, from which you would, could not be freed by the law of Moses. But because of Jesus, you are freed from everything. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets had come about. Look, you, and in this case, it's, it's translated scoffers. Be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Does that sound familiar? Paul literally quotes this passage and says, I am doing a work that you would not believe even if told you is in reference to the work he's doing of sending his own son to die for us. That in the middle of everything else, God is saying, I know you're concerned about the pain and suffering that's in your moment right now, but what I want you to do is to remember there's something far bigger going on. This idea, though, as we um, come into it, just simply lays out that not only is he working on something bigger, God is bigger. God is bigger than you. His plans are bigger than you. And yet somehow this big God still knows you. So this is the third and final point. God is bigger than you and yet he knows you. He desires to be involved in your life. He wants to know you intimately even in the middle of everything else. God is bigger than you and he knows you. The fascinating part about this is how you can get this truth out of Habakkuk is what he says in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. And listen, he knows the Chaldeans. He knows their bitterness. 
He knows their impatience, that bitter and hasty nation. He knows their anger. He knows their violence. He knows how they ride a horse. He knows their hometowns. He knows where they're coming from. He is rising them up. He's actively involved in their lives. In the Goyim's life, he knows the details of their life and he knows the details of yours. In my life, there was a point in time in Hume where it was being threatened by a a bill going through Congress. And I, at the time, was invited to go testify before Congress about it. And I was like, what do I know? What I know is this, is that when I went into Bible college, I showed up late at orientation. And as I showed up late at orientation, people were leaving the, the building. And there'd be a a professor on the stage and they would say something and then a lot of people would walk out with that professor. And I'm like, what's going on? And somebody would say, well, I'm the professor of youth ministries. And so then he would get up and walk out and all those people who wanted to be in youth ministry would walk out with him. And then the next guy gets up and says, well, I'm the professor of pastoral minor and if you want to be a pastor, come with me. And then they got up and walked out. And as I watched people walk out, I thought, I've got to get up and walk out with somebody. Now, what I didn't realize is that Multnomah, where I went, everybody majors in Bible, and that what they were walking out for was a minor that was like taking a double major at Multnomah. You didn't have to take it. Most people wouldn't take it. These were only the people that wanted to do it. I didn't know that. I showed up, and I'm watching people walk out, and I think, I have to walk out with one of these. So there was like three left, Christian education, which is like Sunday school. And I wasn't even sure what that was. So they got up and walked out. I let them. It was down to two professors on the stage. And one got up and she said, I'm the professor in charge of all of women's ministries. If you would like to come with me, come on out. (laughs) I let them walk. You can be thankful for that. That left one professor on the stage. And he says, I'm the professor of journalism. And if you would like to take a minor in journalism, come with me. And I got up and I walked out with like eight other students. I ended up with a double degree in Bible and journalism. What I thought journalism was, was this, sitting down and writing in a journal. I thought, that's cool. This is awesome that we can learn how to know God better by journaling. I'll take that class. I signed up to take a journalism major without even knowing what it was. I literally had to, I had failed the English entrance exam and had to take bonehead English at the same time. The rest is history because what happened was God took that flawed part of me that didn't know the broader picture and he took me through journalism where I learned to write, I learned to be able to communicate and then I, when I went back to Hume Lake, I ended up being able to write the videos and in one day, the executive director of the camp walks in with a video about giant sequoias and a need that was threatening Hume and he said, I need you to write a video. He came to me because I was a writer Why was I a writer? Because I didn't know what journalism was. (laughs) But God was doing a bigger work. And from there, I got sent to Congress to testify. And God put his favor on us. And I ended up being able to testify in such a way that the day that the, the time that I'm testifying, instead of the normal chairman of the committee, 
the guy who wrote the bill that was threatening the camp, he actually was put into the chairman seat. He wasn't the normal guy asking the questions, but the guy that was normally the chair got called out to vote. He left. And so the guy who wrote the bill that I'm about to say all the bad things about, he steps in the chair seat, and that's my time to testify in Congress. And the pressure comes down, and I, I just simply say what the Lord had given me to say at that moment. And in the end, the man stops and says, Mr. Lilly, that's one of the best testimonies I've ever heard. And he ended up pulling his bill back so it never went to vote. Hume didn't get dissolved. And at that point, the leadership of Hume stopped and said, who is this kid? And at that point, it opened the door for leadership for me. I am not a natural born leader who wants to be a leader. But I am somebody who listens and wonders about God and God takes me on, play, on journeys and takes me places because he's doing a far bigger work. This story of Habakkuk is not about me. It's not about goodness. In fact, if you're not paying attention, this is a tragic story in all ways. So I'll bring in some tragedy to wrap us up. Just uh, not quite a year ago, my son-in-law went in for a surgery that ended up taking his life. Many of you know this story. Many of you prayed. And you heard the stories as they went back and forth. Is, is he's going to make it. Things are going well. And now he's declining. And now we're not sure. Ask, we prayed for the surgeons to have wisdom, to have skilled hands, that God would heal, that God would do a work. And God did not do a work, right? Because he died. God's inept. God's incapable. God is not paying attention. Or is God doing a greater work? This chapter, this section that we're reading today in verse 11 says, Then they sweep by, they being the Chaldeans, like the wind, and they go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. We have a choice in the middle of the darkness of who we trust. In the middle of this, this whole thing of what happened with Cody's life and, and losing him, even in the dark days, in fact, especially in the dark days, we need to ask him. We need to seek him. And with the Chaldeans, this last point is they trusted in their own flesh. They trusted in their own might. And we need to trust in him. Yesterday, my daughter texted. She had gotten a tattoo because she wanted to memorialize what had happened with her time with her husband. And so she decided to get a tattoo that would help her remember. And the tattoo, and I, I hesitated whether to share this story because it's like, well, will you think less of my daughter if you get tattoos? And then some of you started showing me your tattoos. And I realized, eh. then there's Darren. I mean, it's already that. It's a, <laughs> So yesterday, my daughter texted a picture and written across her arm were the words, it is well. It is well. Let me pray for us. Lord, I don't know how my daughter even says that. With all the difficulties that have poured into her life, the injustices, the pain, the suffering, the difficulties, and yet here you are, Lord. That in her mind, she has turned to you. Lord, may all of our questions be turned to you.
may we ask you, may we seek you, and Lord, ultimately, may we trust you. Lord, I don't know everything that's going on in people's lives here. I know what's going on in my life, and that's enough for me. But Lord, we are boldly coming before your throne. We are asking your spirit to intercede on our behalf for the pain and the hurt and the questions that we are carrying. Lord, I would ask you to meet us there as we dive into this book that you have chosen to be read thousands of years later, that we would find in it your truth, your grace, and the greater work of your hand in our lives. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.